Okay, so this is our discussion of Simon Dong's individuation in the light of notions of form and information. We're just finishing part one of the book on uh, physical individuation, and we're going to begin part two on vital individuation. So the the last bit that we that we read last time uh, and that we're going to continue to read now is sort of the conclusion of the the last chapter of uh, that first part. So um, the chapter where we've been dealing with quantum mechanics in some pretty uh, in in pretty good detail. Um, uh, and and so the the conclusion develops this notion of a relative individuation. So he, Simon Dong here argues that we should ascribe uh, a degree of individuation to, uh, or a degree of individuality to the particles that are uh, discussed in quantum theory. And so there would be, um, rather than individuality being uh, a sort of all or nothing property, it's something that comes in degrees. These degrees would be relative to the amount or the the proportion of the pre-individual reality that is incorporated into uh, that individual, and and so something like a, a photon has only a, a low degree of individuation or of individuality because it, uh, it that that photon concept is only really useful in um, certain particular cons um, certain particular uh, domains uh, so in particular the photoelectric effect that we've discussed whereas in other domains the photon concept is not useful um, and so in particular when you talk about um, the wavelength of a um, uh, electromagnetic radiation uh, it can you can increase that wavelength indefinitely and you can uh, conceptually, you can go to the limit of a, a a wave that had that would have an infinite wavelength, um, and and so it would uh, uh, there would be no there would be no place for a photon concept uh, with a, a wave with an infinite wavelength, and and so uh, and and more um, physically or more um, pragmatically in in the case of uh, radio waves and other waves with long wavelengths, the photon concept is less useful compared to the um, ultraviolet radiation that is used in the photoelectric effect. Um, so that's sort of where we ended up last time. Um, I think we're at um, the first full paragraph on 161, uh, if I'm not mistaken. So um, I'll start reading and I'll go through about a page or so and then we can stop there. The limits of the physical individual are also themselves metastable. An ensemble of fissile nuclei isn't really an individuated ensemble. It's a number of nuclei taking into account the average radioactivity of the nuclei is small enough for the fission of a nucleus to have little chance of provoking the fission of another nucleus. Everything happens as if each nucleus were isolated from the others. Each has its own chronology, and the fission occurs for each nucleus as if it were alone. On the contrary, if a large quantity of fissile material is gathered together, the probability for the results of the fission of a nucleus to provoke the fission of another nucleus increases. When this probability reaches unity, the internal chronology of each nucleus abruptly changes. Instead of consisting in itself, it forms a network of internal resonance with the resonance of all the other nuclei capable of fission. The physical individual is then the entire mass of fissile material and no longer each nucleus. The notion of critical mass gives the example of what can be called a relative threshold of individuation. The, chron the chronology of the ensemble becomes abruptly coextensive with the topology of the ensemble. 
there is individuation because there is exchange between the, the microphysical level and the macrophysical level. The capacity for the ensemble's reception of information abruptly in increases. By modifying topological conditions, we can utilize nuclear energy either for abrupt effects through the gathering of several masses, each inferior to critical mass, or for continuous moderate effects by controlling the exchange between fissile nuclei by means of a controllable apparatus that maintains the ensemble below the unitary coefficient of amplification, for example, through the greater or lesser absorption of radiation. Consequently, it can be said that the degree of individuation of an ensemble depends on the correlation between the system's chronology and topology. This degree of individuation can also be called the level of interactive communication, since it defines the degree of the internal resonance of the ensemble. So yeah, this is an example that he introduced um, at the beginning of this section um, having to do with radioactivity. Um, and so this, just as a sort of um, background, uh, so in the radioactive decay of a, a radioactive substance, there, there is um, a certain probability in any given time period that um, one of the nuclei um, uh, of, the, of the substance will release um, a particle um, and, uh, and uh, release energy at the same time. Um, and uh, there's a, a certain probability that that particle will strike another nucleus uh, and cause it to, um, to undergo fission as well. Um, and so the, the denser the material or the, the greater the, um, the amount of the nuclear, of the radioactive material that you have in a given um, block or in a given um, mass, um, the greater the chance is that one of those particles will strike uh, another nucleus um, and, and cause it to undergo fission. So then the, the chance for each individual nucleus to, um, to undergo fission uh, increases because, um, because there's the uh, greater chance that it's going to be struck by the particles emitted by um, the other nucleus. And, uh, and then once you reach a certain critical mass, so once, once the amount of the radioactive substance reaches a certain uh, threshold, then that uh, probability reaches uh, probability one. So it, it's uh, certain that um, the, the um, nucleus is going to undergo fission. Uh, and so these, um, based on the, um, the way that the the radioactive material uh, is is either isolated from uh, uh, the environment or or whether it's um, allowed or whether it's all sort of gathered together in one um, uh, critical mass. Uh, you can either control the uh, the fission so that it's um, a, a low level of um, of fission in in the radioactive substance, um, which is what you, you do for generating nuclear energy in a power plant. Um, you use the energy released by the fission to uh, boil water uh, and turn a, a turbine. Uh, or you can also, of course, use uh, radioactive material to produce a, a nuclear explosion when uh, you have this uncontrolled um, fission of the, of the critical mass. And so, uh, what Simon Don is um, developing here is is this notion that um, in the in the case where you have um, a, a mass of radioactive material that's below the critical mass, it um, 
uh, each nucleus has its own chronology. Um, so it's, uh, has its own, uh, probability of decay at any given time period. And then once you reach that critical mass, then the chronology of each nucleus is correlated with all the others. Uh, so, uh, this is what he describes as the, the correlation between, um, chronology and topology. So the, um, the neighborhood structure of the um, of the material uh, affects the affects the um, the chronology uh, the way that the chronology of each of the um, nuclei works. Um, so they're all they're not in isolation anymore. So that's that's sort of the background of what's going on in this paragraph. Um, and one other point is that. Um, I think it's interesting that he's given us two different criteria for uh, the degree of individuation of uh, an entity. In the passage that we just read, he he says that the degree of correlation uh, between chronology and topology would be the the criterion for um, the degree of individuation of an entity. Uh, and then a couple of pages earlier, on page one sixty, he suggests that. Um, oh, yes, here it is. So on, on 160, uh, this, the first full paragraph, uh, about a third of the way down the page. So he says, we could then speak of a more or less elevated level of individuation. An ensemble would possess a more elevated level of individuation in proportion to the greater amount of pre-individual reality it would envelop and compatibilize in its chronological and topological systematics or in proportion to the difference between orders of magnitude. So the one, the first criterion um, or the the second one in terms of the order in which he presents them, the one that uh, is in the, the the last paragraph we just read, the the criterion there is um, the degree of correlation between uh, chronology and topology, uh, and then in the earlier one on on page 160, the criterion for individuation is the um, the proportion of the pre-individual reality that is enveloped uh, by that entity. Uh, and so it, it was not obvious that those two criteria would coincide necessarily that uh, something that is um, that would be regarded as having a high degree of individuality on one criterion would necessarily have a high degree of, of individuality on the other criterion. Um, so I, I think that's a bit of an obscure point where um, it would be helpful to have a an argument why we should take these two criteria to coincide, um, but uh, I don't think Simon Don gives us that. Okay, so we can go on to the next page on 162, if someone else would like to read. From this point of view, it seems possible to understand why the antagonistic representations of the continuous and discontinuous of matter and energy of structure and operation are not usable except as complementary pairs. This is because these notions define opposite and extreme aspects of the orders of reality between which individuation is established. But the operation of individuation is the active center of this relation. It is the latter that is the unity of the center that splits into aspects which are complementary for us, albeit in the real they are paired by the continuous and transductive unity of intermediary being what we call here internal resonance. The complementary aspects of the real are extreme aspects that define the dimensionality of the re real. Since we can only grasp reality through its manifestations, when it changes, we only perceive extreme complementary aspects. 
but rather than the real, what we perceive are dimensions of the real. We grasp its chronology and topology of individuation without being able to grasp the pre-individual real that substance this transformation. We have, again, um, as Alyosha posted in the, the chat, we have this notion of internal resonance that we've seen throughout this first part of the book, which is explicitly uh, introduced here. And so, and this also brings back this uh, thesis that Simon Don had introduced, uh, I think, at the beginning of this part, where he, he suggests that the complementarity of concepts that we have in uh, quantum theory, so the, the wave-particle duality, um, for instance, and, and then he suggests that these other um, pairs of concepts like continuous versus discontinuous um, matter and energy structure and operation, that these are concepts that have to be used in this complementary way or, or in, in these pairs because they don't grasp the reality um, itself, they grasp um, this, uh, what he calls here, the dimensionality of, of the real rather than the real itself. Um, so they, in a, an earlier passage, he, he says that um, concepts as such, so in the specific sense in which he's using the term concepts, concepts are, are not capable of grasping individuation. Um, so insofar as the real is a, a process of individuation, then we can't use concepts to, um, to grasp it. Uh, and um, in his other major work, the the book on uh, on the mode of existence of technical objects, um, he uses the term intuition for the the alternative uh, um, mode of knowing. Um, so through uh, we we know individuation or uh, genesis uh, through in, um, intuition. Um, and I don't think we should understand that as some sort of mysterious um, faculty or anything like that. But um, uh, what he, the way he puts it in this book is that um, uh, our knowledge of um, a transductive process, so a, um, a process of genesis, is, um, is itself an individuation in our knowledge. So we, we can only know individuation by undergoing an individuation. Um, and and this is also connected to the the um, the other thesis that that um, in knowledge the the unit which is being individuated is not just the knowing subject but it's the whole system which includes both the the knowing subject and the object known. Um, so that that whole system is uh, undergoing a process of individuation, uh, and and that's what knowledge consists in, and and so when we have that knowledge in that uh, full sense, when we have that individuation of the total system, um, then we can grasp the real uh, in its individuation, in, uh, in that process of individuation. But when we try to use um, concepts in the restricted sense uh, to grasp the real, then we end up having to use these pairs of concepts that have this um, uh, as he puts it here, antagonistic representations of the real. Uh, that's sort of the, um, uh, I think, the, what's going on in, in this passage. Um, yeah, so the, Alyosha posted in the chat the, um, uh, or the, the comments about um, the internal resonance, um, um, which, is, uh, which, has, which comes about when the capacity of the ensemble's reception of information abruptly increases um, and 
suggests that this um, makes more and more indeterminate results possible. I, I'm not sure if that last bit is correct because I think I think the like in the case of the radioactive decay, the results become more determinate as you approach that critical mass. Um, so once once you reach critical mass, then you have a um, uh, you can predict the um, when the uh, uh, fission is going to happen. Whereas uh, when you're below critical mass, there's only a probabilistic um, uh, um, prediction that within a certain time interval, you have a certain chance of uh, of the um, uh, radioactive decay happening. Um, so yeah, I'm not sure if that lines up in the right way. Um, and Aldrin's uh, posted also, um, uh, there's a connection with Spinoza's uh, third kind of knowledge. Uh, yes, I think that's right, because the, um, the third kind of knowledge uh, is a genetic knowledge. So Spinoza, um, if I remember correctly, he, he uses the example of uh, knowledge of a circle, where if you just define a circle as a, a set of points that are equally distant from one point, then you have a um, only the the first uh, sorry the second kind of knowledge um, you have a, um, a a nominal definition of the of the circle but if you um, define a circle uh, by um, the the line generated by uh, rotating a line about a point then you have a, a genetic knowledge of the um, of the formation of the circle so you you um, you don't just have a nominal definition, but you have a real definition. And uh, um, and this type of knowledge uh, Spinoza also calls intuitive. Um, so it's not just, uh, um, it's not purely conceptual. Um, it's a, some sort of immediate grasp of a, a truth. Um, and uh, it's a little bit mysterious, I think, in Spinoza. But uh, yes, it, it's definitely related to um, the intuitive knowledge that Simon Don talks about. With this discussion here of this intermediary being, it seems like a kind of prototype for that would be the Spinozian substance. Only, I mean, I don't think uh, Simon Don wants to use those terms. And, uh, and also, I think in Spinoza, Spinoza is still probably a little too rationalist for him. Uh, I mean, we had that section earlier where he wasn't too happy with Spinoza. Um, but it does seem like, so it, to me, it seems like what we're looking at here is something like Spinoza's, this Spinozian substance, only it's um, kind of its essence is becoming rather than uh you know, this kind of, um, I guess, a kind of identical being that, you know, Spinoza is after. Yeah, I think um, that sounds like something along the right lines. Um, and, and this is a, like the, the sort of project or um, ambition of um, making Spinoza dynamic or something like that, um, like taking the Spinozistic um, substance and making it not something um, uh, static, but something that undergoes becoming. Um, that's um, a project that I think a lot of, uh, or at least a, a few different um, philosophers have taken on. And this was one of the sort of core um, 
uh, ambitions in uh, in German idealism was um, on the one hand a, a recognition of the the force of, of the uh, Spinozistic system, um, but then also on the other hand wanting it to be to have something like um, uh, becoming uh, uh, have have something like becoming being integrated into uh, substance rather than being um, ultimately uh, an illusion or, or a, a lesser degree of reality like it is in Spinoza. Um, and so I think Simon Don um, can be understood as doing something um, similar, something along the same lines. Do, do you not think, though, with the intermediary being, because this is kind of what I'm still grappling with, is that, like what I was saying before, do, are we misunderstanding determinant and indeterminate? Because maybe it has nothing to do with results in a statistical sense but it's about it's like a an ontological statement of what they are you know so like intermediary being presumably because it's he says it's continuous and transductive uh, trans, continuous and transductive unity calling it determinate would sort of make no sense right so this is why i'm going back to the idea of uh him multiple times introducing talking about internal resonance from 159 onwards and i guess just yeah in my head trying to you know, maybe indeterminacy here is not about uh, randomness, but about open-endedness and infinite extension. Because isn't this, didn't we just read in that section as well, the physical individual? Actually, I think this comes later when he starts talking about the living being in 167. But he'll, I think he'll distinguish and say that the, whereas the physical individual can sort of be infinitely extended, that's not the case of the living being. Anyway, I still think, I'm still puzzling over this thing that we talked about. Was it last week or the week before? Um, and I feel like it's sort of being expanded here and maybe confirming that it wasn't a, a typo or a mistake. But Yeah, um, I mean, of course, the uh, the sort of default assumption is that uh, that it, it's not a mistake. So um, if, uh, if we want to... Um, if we want to say that it is a mistake, then we have to make that case. But uh, and and I don't think I've done that um, in a, a sort of a full sense. Um, but uh, my my inclination is still to see that as um, as a mistake that he he just put one word for the other in that passage that we talked about last week. Um, but. Uh, yeah, I think um, I think to make that case, I would probably have to write a paper on it, which I don't think I'm going to do. Okay, so we can go on to the next uh, page or so. Um, if someone else wants to pick up from 162, the second paragraph, uh, information understood as the arrival. Information understood as the arrival of a singularity that creates a communication between orders of reality is what we can think most easily, at least in several particular cases like free or free or limited chain reactions. This intervention of a notion of information does not, however, allow us to resolve the problem of the rapport of different levels of individuation. A crystal is composed of molecules. It requires the unity of energetic conditions, metastability, and structural conditions, a crystalline germ, for us to have a crystallized, supersaturated solution. Can an individuated being, such as a molecule, which is already an edifice, intervene as a structural germ of this larger edifice, i.e. a crystal? Or instead, does it take a structural germ that is already of an order of magnitude superior to that of a molecule for the crystal to be able to begin? In the current state of knowledge, it is difficult to come up with a generalizable answer to this question. 
It can merely be said that the problem of the rapport of inert matter and life would be clearer if it could be shown that the living being is characterized by the fact that it discovers in its field of reality, in its field of reality, structural conditions that allow it to resolve its own incompatibilities. The distance between orders of magnitude of its reality. Whereas inert matter does not have this capacity of the autogenesis of structures. A singularity is required in order for the supersaturated solution to crystallize. Does this mean that inert matter does not increase its capital of singularities, whereas living matter increases this capital, since this increases precisely the ontogenesis of a living being and is capable of adaptation and invention? This distinction can only be given as a methodological hypothesis. It does not seem that we can oppose a living matter and a non-living matter, but instead that we can oppose a primary individuation in inert systems and a secondary individuation in living systems, specifically according to the different modalities of the regimes of communication during these individuations. Between the inert and the living, there would then be a quantum difference of the capacity for the reception of information rather than a substantial difference. If it exists, the continuity between the inert and the living would have to be sought on the level that is situated between microphysical reality and macrophysical reality, i.e. on the level of the individuation of systems like the large molecules of organic chemistry which are complex enough for variable regimes of the reception of information to be able to exist in them and restricted enough in their dimensions for microphysical forces to intervene in them as bearers of energetic and structural conditions. According to this conception, it could be said that the bifurcation between the living and the non-living is situated on a certain dimensional level, that of macromolecules, phenomena on an inferior order of magnitude, which are called microphysical phenomena, would in fact neither be physical nor vital, but pre-physical and pre-vital. The pure non-living physical would only begin on the supramolecular scale. It is at this level that individuation puts forth the crystal or the mass of protoplasmic matter. In the macrophysical forms of individuation, we indeed distinguish the living from the non-living. While an organism assimilates by diversifying, the crystal grows through the iteration of an addition of in indefinitely ordered layers. But at the level of macromolecules, it, it can hardly be said whether viruses are living or non-living. To adopt the notion of informa information reception as an essential expression of the operation of individuation would be to assert that individuation is carried out on a certain dimensional topological and chronological scale. Below this scale, reality is pre-physical and pre-vital, since it is pre-individual. Above this scale, there is physical individuation when the system is capable of receiving information a single time, then develops and amplifies this initial singularity by individuating in a non-self-limited way. If the system is capable of successively receiving several inputs of information, of combining several singularities instead of iterating the single and initial singularity cumulatively and through transductive amplification, then individuation is vital, self-limited, and organized. Yeah, so there's, uh, there's a lot in this section. Um, 
So maybe the first thing is um, this question about the structural germ that we've discussed a couple of times, others come up in our reading. Um, but um, the, the question is um, in the process of individuation uh, at the formation of the, the crystal, uh, where does this structural germ come from? Because uh, it seems as though we we have to presuppose um, an existing crystal or an existing uh, already individuated um, entity uh, as the the germ from which uh, a further individuation can occur. Uh, but then, of course, that just puts the uh, pushes the question back uh, one uh, one layer or one unit um, because then we need to account for that first um, uh, individual from which the, the, the crystallization process can, can occur. Um, and we saw in the um, form information potentials uh, discussion uh, that um, Simon Don sort of raises the possibility that there's something like a chance uh, formation of the structural germ uh, in the supersaturated solution. Um, but he, so he just raises the possibility, then he says something like it's it's difficult to accept this answer or something like that. Um, uh, he, uh, he gives a sort of vague um, dismissal of that possibility that, that there's a role of chance um, in the formation of the structural germ. But here, uh, the, the problem of the structural germ um, uh, is is related to the the distinction between physical individuation and vital individuation. Uh, in the case of physical individuation, you have um, the the structural germ, uh, which um, uh, or the singularity that uh, that um, brings that uh, sort of imports information into the system, um, and uh, and then you have um, and then you have the uh, amplification of that information uh, in the structuring of the pre-individual field. Um, so there's a, a sort of um, one-time quality to this individuation process. So you start with a, an unindividuated field, um, and then you have the structural germ intervenes, and then you have an amplification um, across that uh, across that field, which undergoes structuration, but after that process is done, then it's just individuated and um, uh, and it, it's sort of um, inert in that sense. Um, whereas in the case of vital individuation, um, the entity that undergoes vital individuation retains this capacity to um, to um, to undergo further individuations and to um, incorporate information, um, so it, it's uh, it's not just um, a single structural germ and uh, the structuration of the field. Um, it's an ongoing process of um, uh, incorporating external information and uh, undergoing individuation um, continually. So the, the difference between physical individuation and vital individuation is not, um, it's not like uh, two different kinds of matter. Um, so he, he, he sort of raises this hypothesis that there would be a, a, a living matter and a non-living matter. 
Um, but then he, he says that we should instead think of it as um, two different forms of individuation uh, so that um, uh, the um, microphysical reality would um, the microphysical reality would precede the distinction between physical and vital uh, individuation. So it would be a, a pre-physical and pre-living uh, pre uh, reality, which uh, only subsequently undergoes individuation into, um, into something physical or something vital. Um, let's see, what else do we have? Uh, I have something on that idea of the continuity. Uh, the inorganic and the organic. Um, I read about this experiment fairly recently uh, called the Miller-Urey experiment, um, where these scientists at, I think, University of Chicago uh, in, I guess it was 1952. I don't know if Simone knew about this, but um, they took a, this liquid solution that had all these... Uh, inorganic compounds and successively um, heated it to evaporate it and then condensed it so that it went down through this chamber that uh, shocked it um, with like with electricity after which it condensed again and they did this over and over and over again and eventually the inorganic precursors formed like complex organic compounds so I think that 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 idea supports kind of what Simonin is talking about here with there not being a, a hard break between the, the non-living and the living, but, uh, um, you know, rather a different form of organization of the same matter, I guess. Yeah. Uh, to piggyback onto that, I posted a article by Dr. Hedda Hassel, uh, called integrated information theory and it's a study of sort of like information and consciousness uh that kind of posits that what we consider consciousness is sort of like on a on a scale of things that have both complexity and integration and they sort of uh not as far as monism but they they uh kind of attribute some form of intelligence at some level to basically everything. And then uh, the, the, the buildup to what we consider like consciousness comes in increasing complexity and integration. And there's no like hard boundaries between what causes something to truly become like conscious. Yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting. The, um, uh, the experiment, I don't remember seeing that precise experiment, but I know in um, Origins of Life research, um, something like that is, is sort of the, uh, the general approach where you, you take um, materials that uh, could plausibly have been uh, around um, in the pre-life um, pre era of the Earth. Um, so uh, like carbon, hydrogen compounds, uh, um, and, um, um, you, uh, sort of make them undergo these physical processes that are also, uh, sort of plausible, um, as having occurred in that environment. Uh, so ultraviolet radiation, I think is one that, that is used, um, 
and then like electric shock uh, in this experiment. Um, and the hope is that you'll um, eventually see the formation of uh, complex organic molecules um, through the, the sort of spontaneous processes under that, um, that this um, sort of soup of, uh, of chemical precursors is undergoing. Um, and I think there have been a few different um, results that, that show that you do in fact get um, some complex molecules um, and um, you, uh, there, there are some, if I remember, if I remember correctly, that um, that also showed um, um, membrane type structures, uh, so that um, um, structures that are similar to the membranes of cells uh, form spontaneously in in these uh, uh, sort of um, chemical soups, um, and uh, and so the. I guess the takeaway um, or the the message that, that um, we should draw from these types of experiments is precisely that there there is a, a continuity between um, between non living um, non living entities and and living ones um, in the sense that there's no uh, um, there's no difference in the, the composition of those entities. The, the difference between living and non-living has to do with the way that um, that, that matter is organized. Um, and there's also, of course, uh, what Simondon alludes to here is the border cases. So something like a virus, um, like a virus is basically just a, um, a, a bunch of RNA um, inside a, a protein um, package. Uh, and so a virus outside of a outside of a living organism is inert. Uh, it doesn't do anything on its own. It doesn't have a, a metabolism. Um, but once it's inserted into the uh, living organism of the right kind, then it, um, it basically uh, hijacks the um, cellular machinery of that organism and makes it uh, produce copies of itself. Um, and uh, you have the same thing with with prions, which are basically just protein structures that, uh, uh, again, are inert if you if you take them outside of a uh, an organism. Um, but in organisms of the right kind, they reproduce themselves by um, by uh, basically transforming uh, other proteins into that structure. Um, so they. Um, uh, Again, reproduction is, is generally considered one of the sort of fundamental um, qualities of, of living being, uh, uh, but it's here exhibited by something that uh, doesn't seem to be living by other um, by other standards. Um, so that yeah, we have these borderline cases that you can't really say are they alive or not um, because they they have some of the of what we consider essential properties of living beings, but then they also lack other properties like um, metabolism. Uh, um, so this also shows that there's, uh, or it suggests at least that there's no, um, uh, that there's a continuity between living and non-living um, and, and these borderline cases would be somewhere in the middle. Um, and uh, the, uh, integrated information approach to uh, to consciousness, uh, yeah, something that I, I don't really know a lot about, but um, it uh, 
um, I think it does fit in well with with this uh, with Simon Don's general um, understanding of individuation in the sense that um, that internal uh, internal resonance or the correlation um, is is always what he brings up in connection with individuation, uh, and so it would make sense that um, um, that something like uh, the, in, the integration of information uh, would correspond to uh, to individuation in uh, um, well, this is what we'll eventually get to with psychic individuation. Um, uh, but again, there would be a, a continuity between uh, um, entities that that do have psychic individuation and, and those that don't. It wouldn't be a, a sort of um, yes or no property. Okay, so we can go on to the next bit. Um, I can read this part, uh, and I think that will take us to the end of the chapter. Right, okay, bottom of 163. It is customary to see in vital processes a greater complexity than in non-vital physical chemical processes. However, to be faithful, even in the most hypothetical conjectures to the intention that animates this research, we will suppose that vital individuation does not come after physical chemical individuation, but during this individuation and before its fulfillment, by suspending it at the moment when it has not reached its stable equilibrium, and by making it capable of expanding and propagating before the iteration of the perfect structure merely able to repeat itself, which would conserve in the living individual a bit of pre-individual tension of active communication in the form of internal resonance between extreme orders of magnitude. According to this way of viewing things, vital individuation would come to be inserted in physical individuation by suspending its course, by slowing it down and by making it capable of propagating in the inchoate state. Living individual would be in some sense and on its most initial levels, a crystal in the nascent state that is amplified without stabilizing. To relate the schema of interpretation to the most current notions, we can appeal to the idea of neotini and generalize these types of reports between classes of individuals by supposing a slew of possible neotenic developments in the category of living beings. In a certain sense, animal individuation can be considered more complex than vegetal individuation. However, the animal can also be considered an inchoate plant that develops and becomes organized while conserving the motive, receptive, and reactional possibilities that appear in the reproduction of plants. If it is supposed that vital individuation retains and expands the most precocious phase of physical individuation, such that the vital would be the physical in suspense, slowed down in its process and indefinitely expanded. It can also be supposed that animal individuation is nourished by the most primitive phase of vegetal individuation, which retains within it something prior to its development as an adult plant, and more specifically, maintains a capacity for receiving information over a much longer period of time. Thus, it would be understood why these categories of increasingly complex but also increasingly unfinished and decreasingly stable and self-sufficient individuals require more complete and more stable layers of individuals as an associated milieu. Living beings require physical chemical individuals to live. Animals require plants, which are for them, in the proper sense of the term, nature, in the same way that chemical compounds are for plants. Yeah, so there's this notion of uh, neotini, which he, he uses here. Um, and so this refers to evolutionary history in which um, what at one stage is a, a juvenile form sort of replaces the adult form uh, at a later stage uh, of the evolutionary history. And uh, Adiosha has posted the, the picture or the gift there of an axolotl, um, which um, 
uh, is an amphibian, um, which uh, doesn't undergo um, the uh, transformation or the, the metamorphosis from the larval stage to um, to uh, uh, an adult stage. Um, uh, so it's it basically corresponds to a tadpole that never becomes a frog. And uh, Simon Don takes this as sort of the, the model for the relationship between, uh, on the one hand, uh, living or vital individuation and uh, physical individuation, and then within vital individuation between the uh, uh, the the um, individuation of plants and the individuation of animals. Uh, so in each case, we have a, a relation of, of neotene, um, the, the process of development or of, uh, uh, of becoming uh, is slowed down. It uh, is not allowed to um, reach its completion uh, and, and that's a preliminary stage or that um, um, early uh, um, element is uh, is preserved uh, in the further development, and so again we have this uh, relationship with chronology. So the 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 relationship between physical individuation and vital individuation is a chronological one, um, in the sense that vital individuation is a, a slowed down process of um, of physical individuation, and I really like this this bit where he says that. Um, yeah, an animal can be considered an inchoate plant. I think that's a, a really, um, a really powerful image. Uh, so the the plant in general um, has these motive capacities only uh, as a as a seed. So the seed is uh, is mobile and and um, uh, in the sense that it can be carried by the wind or or by an animal or something like that. Uh, and then once it um, takes root, the plant is fixed in that location, um, whereas the animal um, preserves that capacity for um, motility uh, throughout its lifespan. Um, uh, so it, it's as if the seed of a plant, um, rather than taking root, uh, continued to live uh, as an independent motile entity. It's probably also worth mentioning. Um, Simon doesn't doesn't mention this here, but it's generally um, accepted within uh, the study of human evolution that um, humans underwent uh, a process of neoteny. Uh, when you look at the the uh, mammals as a whole, there's a in general a, a linear relationship between the size of an animal and uh, its gestation period, so the the period of uh, pregnancy. But humans uh, fall far below that that line, uh, that linear um, relationship. Um, so, like, if humans were in line with this linear relationship between between size and uh, gestation period, then human pregnancies would last something like eighteen months, I think. And uh, and so, in a sense, uh, humans are born earlier than other uh, mammals are, uh, relatively speaking. And uh, and so their humans are, are born, of course, um, in a pretty uh, helpless state. Whereas uh, deer, for example, are born uh, able to walk uh, within a few minutes or, or hours. Um, uh, so there's a uh, uh, humans are are born early uh, in comparison with other mammals, um, and so this same relationship occurs in uh, uh, in human evolution as well. The uh the idea that he was talking about in the last thing that we read um, about living 
individuals uh, increasing their capital of singularities, and also this bit in the last section about living beings requiring physico-chemical individuals to live sounds a lot like um, Schrodinger's definition of life in that 1945 lecture, uh, I think in Dublin, called What is Life, where he defines life as uh, by the fact that it has to consume neg entropy in order to uh, fend off its own entropy. Yeah, this is... Um... And this is also related to what we were talking about earlier about origins of life uh, research, um, because um, living beings are open systems, uh, um, so they they always um, they have to absorb energy and matter from their environment. Um, they rather than closed systems, which would be isolated from their environment, and and it's precisely because they can absorb. Uh, um, energy and and matter from their environment that they can stay far from uh, thermal equilibrium, um, whereas a closed system would uh, would tend to evolve towards a thermal equilibrium, uh, in in which case there would be no capacity for work. Um, so uh, it is ultimately it's the uh, constant stream of energy coming in from the sun, which, um, which is the, the precondition for, um, for, uh, the possibility of, of life, um, to, uh, yes, Bataille, uh, makes a lot of, of this notion. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, the energy coming in from the sun is the, the source of the, uh, uh the possibility of life. Uh, in Bataille, this is in, um, the accursed chair, yeah, he he develops this whole um, account of life and uh, social organization in terms of the um, uh, absorption or um, managing this excess energy. Um, and, and so he suggests that uh, we should understand life as being a, basically a um, a sort of um, excrescence of the earth uh, to to. Um, use up its excess energy um and uh, and this actually um pretty i think pretty well corresponds to the uh the origins of life type of uh research into um into these uh sort of um far from equilibrium uh um systems so that uh there there is something like a, a spontaneous formation of uh, structure in um, uh, systems that are absorbing energy uh, in the way that the Earth as a whole is. Um, so I think that's yeah, it's it's a pretty cool um, region of uh, of science. So I'm trying to understand the way he was thinking about the difference between um, physical and vital individuation here. So so there's that bit here. According to this way of viewing things. Vital individuation will come to be inserted in physical individuation by suspending its course, slowing it down, making it capable of propagating in the inchoate state. Uh, the living individual would be a crystal in the nascent state that is amplified without stabilizing. And uh, I guess the way I'm reading that is, so thinking back to the crystal, and you know the the the, the seed is dropped and the uh, crystallization process begins and it seems like each each layer of crystal formation ends up stabilizing right that seems pretty straightforward until the entire 
supersaturated solution is individuated and becomes stable. And it seems like with life, it's all, I'm, you know, I'm thinking of it as a, almost like a kind of loop, like a kind of loop has formed so that, you know, no layer is actually finally stable, but maybe it's some kind of, um, you know, like the separate layers become related to each other in some way and almost like keep each other in tension and in a kind of, um, uh, you know, I guess that's how I'm reading this talk of kind of an internal resonance or active communication. Uh, it seems like with the crystal, you know, what happens is the tension is kind of used up, right? And it seems like life has the property of resisting that uh, using up of the tension so that it kind of maintains its own internal uh, internal tension. And then uh, there would be some interesting connections here too with, um, I mean, I think Freud thinks about life and similar terms like in terms of a kind of internal tension that's maintained uh or i guess a kind of balance between you know maintaining that tension but also releasing it because releasing the tension would bring pleasure um but yeah it's almost like what he's trying to explain here is there's a kind of internality or in something inward about life and I vaguely remembered that kind of thing actually coming up in the introduction, I think. Yeah, I don't remember that in the introduction, actually. Um, uh, I think he may have mentioned this, this notion of uh, vital individuation being a, a slowing down of, uh, of physical individuation. But I don't remember him talking about inter internality um, or uh, something internal um, to, to life um, being mentioned in the introduction. Um, uh, but yeah, the, the connection with Freud is interesting too, because um, uh, so in uh, in Beyond the Pleasure Principle, he he talks about um, this uh, this sort of um, uh, notion that that life um, uh, it, it has a sort of uh, tendency towards um, towards the release of tension, so that you know pleasure is. Um, comes about through that that release of tension, um, but the the ultimate release of tension, of course, is is death, in which the all the tensions are are um, are released or or are are not um, existent anymore, um, uh, and so the um, there has to be this yeah this sort of balance between um, the the tension and the release of tension. Um, uh, and, uh, um, yeah, the, the, I think there's, uh, I think it, it wouldn't be hard to try to make connections with, um, what Simon Don was talking about here, um, to, to Freud, um, which would be pretty interesting. Yeah. And I guess, um, I mean, the way I'm anticipating projects is it seems like complexity will, is, will, will be essential for him in explaining life. You know, this kind of multiplicity of levels, uh, like, you know, com mutually communicating levels of, um, uh, I guess, relation. Um, 
And, uh, and I guess the contrast case, you know, the thing that he's deliberately not doing, right, would be the way Platonism would go. Because from, you know, my understanding of that way of thinking, you know, life is a kind of form, right? Life is a kind of idea or something, something absolute that, you know, it's almost like a, uh, it's blasphemy almost, you know, to try to explain life in terms of material processes or, uh, you know, in terms of lower non-living, non-living matter. And, uh, so it's interesting how, I mean, from that perspective, it seems like Simon don't, I mean, I'm, I'm tempted to fit him into that movement of adverting Platonism, right? That Deleuze also participates in and I probably start, or, you know, Nietzsche is certainly a part of as well, where there is a kind of bottom-up explanation rather than, you know, top-down idealism uh, of like absolute ideas or, or whatever. Um, and it seems like the way Simon Don is doing that is with this kind of infrastructure of multiplicities of levels. I mean, his vocabulary is really complex, you know, um, and it seems like, you know, that's the work that it's, that it's doing, right? Um, so the multiple levels, the resonances, the communications, these, the disparate orders, all of that seems to be a way of, you know, how do we explain these phenomena, such as life, I guess that's what's coming up, uh, within the context of a kind of imminence, uh, you know, an imminence system, without bringing in transcendent entities or forms, or uh, which I guess is the fall that would be the fallacy he's been challenging all along, right? Like substantialism. Yeah, with uh, with Plato, it's always um, it's always hard to, I guess, pin down a particular um, uh, doctrine and say this is Plato's doctrine. Because what I'm thinking of here is the the Timaeus, which um, uh, on the one hand does give something like a materialist account of uh, of um, uh, you know, the structure of, of the universe, you know, uh, the universe is composed of these different atoms uh, of the different elements, which have the geometrical forms uh, that correspond to uh, earth and, and fire and, and air and so on. So, on. Um, uh, so yeah, the, the Timaeus has this sort of quasi-materialist um, account of the, um, the different elements of the universe um, but at the same time, it's also um, it's uh, uh, structured around this demiurge um, figure that uh, that imposes these forms or that uh, that puts the universe into this structure. Um, um, so yeah, I think it's uh, probably a, a bit more complicated in, in Plato um, the relationship between. Uh, between some sort of um, bottom-up type of explanation and, and this top-down form of explanation. Um, uh, but yeah, I think Simon Don can, can be put into that same uh, sort of uh, quasi-vitalist tradition, like, you know, Nietzsche, uh, Datsan, 
uh, and then later Deleuze, um, which um, wants to, um, uh, yeah, so it's um, vitalist in the sense that it, it wants to recognize uh, a sort of um, um, uh, a sort of reality to the living being or, or a, um, um, a, a um, specific reality to the living being. So living beings are not simply um, um, composed of, uh, or they're not, they're not reducible to um, uh, chemical operations or something like that. Uh, so there's a, something about life that is, um, that is beyond that, uh, just chemical operations, but at the same time, um, wanting to um, wanting to understand that um, reality of the living as, as arising out of the non-living um, and not as uh, something uh, um, that that sort of uh, transcends the the non-living uh, and yeah Schelling would be another person that we could put into that same uh, tradition um, and uh, the, the connection between Schelling and, and um, the the sort of later version that, that we find in uh, like in Bersan or something like that, I, I think it, it would be it, it's something that's not really been researched that much, I don't think, like in terms of whether there's a, an actual um, uh, sort of direct line of, of uh, uh, inheritance of these ideas um, or if it's just more of like a uh, a vibe, I guess we could say, um, but uh, uh, yeah, that would be interesting to look into. And, and I think Simon Dolan in particular, um, like I, I know for sure that, like in his uh, in one of the annexes to this book on, on the history of the of the notion of the individual, he does mention Schelling there. And I think there's a, a lot of points where we can uh, at least hypothesize that he's drawing on Schelling. Um, but yeah, that's sort of an aside. Okay, so let's go on to the next part. So we, we, finish, we finished part one of the book um, on physical individuation, and uh, we're gonna start part two on vital individuation. Um, so we have chapter one, information and ontogenesis, vital individuation. Uh, then under that, we have section one toward the study of the individuation of the living being, and subsection one, information and vital individuation, levels of organization, vital activity and psychical activity. Um, so I can, I can read the first page or so, uh, and then we'll rotate from there. Physiology poses the difficult problem of levels of individuality depending on the species and according to each being's moments of existence. The same being can in fact exist on different levels. The embryo is not individualized in the same sense as the adult being. Furthermore, in fairly related species, there are behaviors that correspond to a more or less individualized life, depending on the species, without these differences necessarily seeming to be linked to a superiority or inferiority of vital organization. To shed some light on this, it would be helpful to define a measure for levels of individuation. However, if the degree of individuality is submitted to variations in the same species depending on the circumstances, it is difficult to measure this individuality absolutely. It would then be necessary to define the type of reality in which individuation takes place by saying with which dynamic regime it is exchangeable when the level of organization does not vary throughout the, the whole system that contains the vital unit. 
then we would obtain a possibility of measuring the degree of individuality. According to the methodological postulate that we just defined, it would be helpful to resort to the study of integration in systems of organization. In fact, organization can occur either in each being or through the organic relation that exists between different beings. In the latter case, the internal organization in the being is duplicated by an external integration. The group is integrative. The only concrete reality is the vital unit, which can in certain cases be reduced to a single being and which in other cases corresponds to an extremely differentiated group of multiple beings. Furthermore, the fact that an individual is mortal and not divisible by fission or regenerable through protoplasmic exchange corresponds to a level of individuation that indicates the existence of thresholds. Unlike physical individuation, biological individuation takes into account the existence of the whole species, colony, or society. It is not indefinitely extendable like physical individuation. If physical individuation is unlimited, we must seek where there is a transition between physical individuation and biological individuation. Yet the biologically unlimited is found in the species or in the group. What we call individual in biology is in reality something like a sub-individual, much more so than an individual. In biology, it seems that the notion of individuality is applicable to several stages or according to different levels of successive inclusion. But analogically, it would be necessary to consider the physical individual as a biological society, and the latter alone would be the image of, uh, albeit very simple, totality. The first consequence of this manner of thinking establishes that the level of organization contained in a physical system is inferior to that of a biological system, but that a physical individual can possibly have a level of organization superior to that of an individual biological system integrated into a vaster ensemble. Nothing is theoretically opposed to the fact that there is a possibility of exchanges and alternations between physical system, between a physical system and a biological system. But if this hypothesis is valid, it will be necessary to suppose that a physical individual unit transforms into a biological group and that what makes the living being appear is in a sense the suspension of the development of the physical being and its analysis, not a synthetic relation which unites completed physical individuals. If this is the case, then we will have to say that the only very complex physical edifices that, sorry, we will have to say that only very complex physical edifices can transmute into living beings, which truly limits the possible cases of, of spontaneous generation. According to this view, the unit of life would be the complete organized group and not the isolated individual. This doctrine is not a materialism since it supposes a sequence leading from physical reality to the higher biological forms without establishing a distinction between classes and genera. But if it is complete and satisfactory, this doctrine must be able to explain why and in what sense there is the possibility of inductively observing the genus species or even the species individual relation. This distinction must be situated in a broader reality that can account for both the continuity and the discontinuities between species. This discontinuity seems comparable to the quantum characteristic that appears in physics. The criterion of syncrystallization that allows us to recognize chemical species by indicating in which system they crystallize, indicates a type of rapport of real analogy founded on an identity of ontogenetic dynamism. The process of the crystal's formation is the same in both cases. There can be a sequence during the growth of a crystal composed of different chemical species so that its growth is continuous despite the specific heterogeneity of the different levels. The unity created by the continuity of an operation of individuation that encompasses species which seem heterogeneous to one another, according to an inductive classification, 
indicates a profound reality pertaining to the nature of these species as rigorously as what is called specific characteristics. The possibility of sin crystallization does not, however, indicate the existence of a genus because, starting from the criterion of sin crystallization, we cannot go back down to the particular characteristics of each sin crystallizable body by adding on specific differences. Such a property, which indicates the existence of a process of information during an operation of individuation, does not belong to the systematics of genera and species. This property indicates other properties of the real, properties which the latter presents when we consider it relative to the possibility of the spontaneous ontogenesis that can occur in it, depending on its own structures and potentials. Right, so the, the problem that we face um, immediately when we turn to vital individuation is um, the fact that this uh, degree of individuality is, um, is variable uh, within um, uh, the lifespan of an individual um, uh, entity uh, so that we have, um, uh, like the example he gives here is that embryo is not individualized in the same sense as, as the adult being. Um, and, uh, and then it's also variable uh, depending on external circumstances. Um, and we'll see as we continue in this chapter that, that he's going to give examples of um, particular uh, animals that have both a colony form and a, uh, an individual form. Um, so uh, corals, for example, um, have uh, varying degrees of individuality. They uh, sometimes share nutrients between, um, between what you could consider individuals, uh, so they, they have a, a shared circulatory system, and so they're not uh, fully uh, differentiated from each other. Um, and, uh, uh, and so we have this problem of how do we define the degree of ind individuality of a, of a, a living being? Um, and, and so the suggestion here in this uh, on 167 is, um, um, oh, sorry, um, there's a question here, which French word is translated as individuality? Um, it should be individualité, but let me, yeah, individualité. Uh, right, so the, the suggestion that Simon Don gives, or the postulate that, that he gives, um, is that, um, we can only define uh, a level of individuation or a degree of individuation uh, relative to um, relative to um, a certain dynamic regime. Uh, so, uh, uh, an exterior um, environment um, within which the um, the level of uh, individuation does not vary. Um, so once we once we set the background conditions, um, then we can define the degree of individuation um, relative to those conditions. But uh, so this degree of individuation is always relative in that sense. And then so he introduces again this uh, what he he just um, introduced or what he just brought up in the the conclusion of the last chapter. Um, so the fact that physical individuation is unlimited uh, or potentially unlimited uh, in the sense that um, a crystal has no um, 
determine its size, it will just keep on crystallizing the solution as long as there's more uh, solution to crystallize. Um, whereas physical uh, vital individual individuation is limited uh, in terms of uh, size so that uh, a particular kind of plant or animal or, or a bacteria or whatever it is um, has a determinate size range in which it occurs. Um, and uh, and so it can only, um, uh, and then, so it's limited in space uh, in that sense. And then also vital individuation is limited in time uh, in in certain cases, not, not in all cases, but um, um, when you uh, reach multicellular organisms, uh, the there is a, um, uh, a a time limitation on the process of individuation, so that the the entities have a, a certain lifespan, um, which is uh, again within a certain range. Um, but uh, it's not um, it's it's not it can't reproduce itself uh, indefinitely in the way that um, a crystal can continue to individuate indefinitely as long as it has the the uh, environment to do so. I was reading uh, this really interesting article of because we were just talking about like lifespans of things. Uh, that almost almost every mammal within like one standard deviation lives for about the same amount of heartbeats. Yeah, I've heard that before. Um, so, like, there, there's a, a correlation between the size of a, a mammal and uh, its resting heart rate. Um, and um, uh, and so smaller mammals um, have shorter lifespans, uh, and, but they have a, a faster resting heart rate. Um, and so, and, and then larger mammals have a, a longer lifespan in general, um, and, and they have a slower resting heart rate. And, and so the actual, the total uh, like the heart rate times lifespan uh, comes out to uh, roughly the same um, uh, across uh, across all mammals. So yeah, that's uh, an interesting um, biological um, law, I guess you could say. Um, biology often doesn't is presented as not having something like uh, an equivalent to laws of physics, um, but uh, but that is something that that we could compare at least to uh, laws of physics. And uh, another thing that was interesting to me about this section is how sort of like uh, the sizes of certain life forms are like not just like limited in like the practical sense of like what their physiology can support, but but that very limit is like determined by external factors to the life form itself. You look at like, uh, I don't know how much of this is like recent discovery versus like what was known when Samandin was writing, but uh, when the when the oxygen content on Earth was significantly higher than a little over twenty percent uh, of the air, that like there were insects like the size of humans and bigger running around like like dragonflies the size of cars and shit there's an extinct animal the giant north american grizzly it was like 30 feet or something tall at the haunches 
a, a grizzly bear that roamed North America at the time. Uh, when 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 the uh world just allowed for bigger things to exist due to like the external uh milieu and limits. Yeah, this is so. This is exactly um what Simondon was talking, or uh, another instance of what Simondon was talking about with this idea that um, individuation is relative to uh, a particular environment. Um, um, so that um, these uh, different species that are uh, able to um, exist in one environment um, are not able to exist in another environment. Um, and then even beyond that, you have um, like with particular um, particular uh, kinds of uh, uh, like like the corals that I mentioned, um, animals that, um, depending on their environment, they can exist either in a, um, an individuated state uh, or in a, a collective or, or um, colony form. Um, and uh, we'll see more examples of this, but there, there are like um, certain kinds of amoebas, I think, if I remember correctly, that... Um, they uh, they live generally in uh, a sort of uh, uh, individual state. So each individual amoeba just swims around uh, and does its own thing. Um, but then if the environment is um, depleted of, of nutrients, they aggregate together and form like a, a little mini tower of amoebas and, and uh, produce something like a spore, which travels to another environment uh, and then uh, they spread out again in that in that new environment. Um, so, um, what at one level looks like an individual, uh, then in a different environment, um, turns out to be or acts as the uh, a component of a larger individual. Um, and and so, yeah, we have this relativity of uh, degrees of individuation to an environment. So I'm trying to understand this uh, manner of thinking of Simon Don here, uh, like he calls it. And uh, so a couple of things are interesting. So in the first, or I guess it's the second paragraph, he says, uh, we would obtain a possibility of measuring the degree of individuality. And it's interesting how individuality has a degree. And uh, I don't know if that's going to be unique to life or if that was also the case, probably was, I guess, with uh, physical individuality. Um, but that's interesting. And so later he, will, he also says, I mean, again, kind of reiterating, we're not talking about species in general here. You know, that's not the way of, that's not the manner of thinking, right? That kind of Aristotelian, I guess, the platonic, platonic logic it's probably already on the way towards species in general. Um, and that's not what we're doing here, right? And we've seen that already, I think, multiple times. Um, and so I guess I'm trying to, like, I'm wondering, okay, what is the manner of thinking or what is the kind of logic that's involved here? And um, I'm wondering if maybe... What what's going on is we're in the um, 
kind of in the sphere of what, what are called intensive magnitudes. Uh, I don't know, maybe that goes without saying, but to me, uh, so this, this idea of a degree, the degree of individuality. So I think in Kant, in the first critique, degree is intensive magnitude, right? Um, and, and it's interesting because, so I think when we're, we're talking about species and genera, we're basically in the sphere of qualities, right? That are kind of unto themselves, you know, um, like separate substantial qualities. And I think Simondon actively is, you know, resisting that way of thinking, right? Uh, which is, I guess, broadly Aristotelian. Um, but then also we're not talking about just like any ordinary quantity either, right? Like extensive quantities. Um, I don't know, maybe extensive quantity is more proper to physical individuation. I don't know. But this talk of degree and measure, uh, to me, is speaking of... Um, so I think Hegel defines measure as the unity of quantity and quality in the logic. And uh, I wonder if he's, Simondon is moving in that kind of direction, right? Something like um, measure is also connected with this idea of a threshold or kind of... Uh, significant cutoff point or you know um but yeah something about like maybe intensive magnitude might make sense here uh just as a i don't know i guess i'm i guess i'm always looking to sort of you know like uh i seem to need a map because the territory simondon territory is just so uh, like I'm lost from like the first moment. So I guess I'm always looking for a map of some kind. Yeah, I think that, um, yeah, so you're right that the um, mode of thinking here is not um, one in terms of species and, and genera, uh, because that's a, a form of thinking that, that Simon Dohan has criticized on, on a number of occasions. Um, but he also says here on, uh, what page is that, 168, um, about three quarters of the way down uh, in that last paragraph. So he says that um, his doctrine has to uh, be able to explain why and in what sense there is the possibility of inductively observing the genus species or even the species individual relation. Uh, so we have to, even though um, correct way of understanding uh, the biological or the living individual, um, we still have to account for the the appearance. Uh, we still have to give um, some sort of account for why genus and species thinking might seem um, appropriate for um, for thinking thinking the the living individual, and um, and so this is. Uh, um, again, something like this uh, relationship between the continuous and the discontinuous, um, so that there, uh, and we saw this with um, uh, chemical substances uh, in the previous part, um, where he he suggests that we can have something like um, we can have something like a, a genus and species classification of uh, chemical substances in terms of their crystalline structure. Um, 
only insofar as there's uh, these discontinuities um, uh, between the different uh, substances in terms of their properties. Um, so the existence of these discontinuities in properties is what um, underlies the possibility of a, a classificatory approach to um, to the, the particular subject matter, whether it's uh, crystals or um, um, living entities. Uh, and so, um, yeah, so the, there's, um, I'm not sure how exactly that connects to um, intensive magnitudes, though. Um, I think, uh, because some of the properties that he's talking about are extensive magnitudes, like when he talks about the way that um, the way that a, um, a living being has a determinate size or a determinate range of sizes that it can uh, reach, as opposed to a uh, um, physical individuation that uh, has no limits. Um, so that that's an extensive magnitude, um, but um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if um, some of the the properties that he has in mind could be extensive magnitude, uh, intensive magnitudes as well. Um, yeah, that, that's something that I think we'd have to come back to because I'm not really sure. Um, one point, one sort of weird point to me at least, or, or obscure point is uh, on the, in that same paragraph at uh, the bottom of 168. Um, so he says, this doctrine is not a materialism since it supposes, uh, so this doctrine is his his doctrine, the one that he's um, uh, arguing for. So he says, this doctrine is not a materialism since it supposes a sequence leading from physical reality to the higher biological forms without establishing a distinction between classes and genera. Um, this to me is weird. Like, why why does not establishing... A distinction between classes and genera make it not a materialism, or what? What is the connection between materialism and uh, a doctrine of classes and genera? I I don't really know what the uh, the connection is that he's drawing here. Yeah, I thought that was confusing too, um, and I think later on he he talks about materialism as as a you know I guess a school of thought that posits a like a hard distinction between the inorganic and the organic, but I, I don't know why he calls that materialism. Wouldn't it just be going back to, the, I mean, it's the whole realism, idealism thing that even goes back to Bergson, right? That like, uh, in a crude kind of materialism, you're already, it's like you're dealing with an in already individuated system and, uh, you know, you're, you're trying to restitch seeming, seemingly distinct individuals together to form this synthesis when in actuality that there's already this whole prior stage at which things were decomposed into what appear to be individuals or separate discontinuities so th that's how i read that of the it's not a materialism because it's not because i maybe for simonon materialism would be a kind like without any qualifications would be a kind of crude phenomenological realism where you're just observing sort of d external phenomena and linking them together with various intellectual and conceptual relations that somehow explain 
all the causality between them instead of the you know his whole analogical transductive thing where there's a and kind of a continuity between all of these things through different milieus and stuff. Uh, yeah, that that could be. Um, it still seems weird to me that he uses the term materialism for this doctrine that he's opposing. Um, like it, in in earlier portions of the text, when he talks about materialism, he he's uh, or I actually don't remember if he uses the term materialism, but he he refers to the ancient atomists um, as a as an example. Um, I can't remember if he actually uses the term materialism there. Uh, that's sort of what comes to mind when when we talk about materialism is the ancient atomists. Um, and that, I mean, I don't think there's anything in uh, like Epicureanism though that requires uh, um, a doctrine of classes and genera um, uh, or that, that presupposes um, this type of uh, classificatory thinking. So yeah, it's still weird to me. But yeah, I think we uh, might have to um, might have to leave that problem open, or at least uh, wait until we find other um, passages where he talks about materialism, and maybe that will um, shed light on this passage. So we're getting close to time. Um, I'm thinking maybe maybe we should stop here um, rather than reading another paragraph because we won't have much time to discuss. If we do that, um, unless someone is like uh, dying to read the next paragraph now, okay, not not hearing any objections. So um, yeah, so we're at um, such are the properties on the middle, uh, the middle of uh, one sixty nine. So we'll pick up from there next time and see if we can figure out what's going on with uh, materialism. Thank you, everyone, for uh, your contributions. Uh, we had a good discussion today, I think. Um, um, so, um, yeah, I'll see you all next week.